0: It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Are My Christian Beliefs Based on Truth or Error? Coming up in this episode. If truth matters, why do Christian denominations disagree so much? Who's right when it comes to church hierarchy and appointing pastors? Do churches have a right to supersede the laws of the land? Should women be teaching in our churches? We'll uncover biblical reasoning on all this and more. Now, here's Rick and Jonathan.
1: Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode?
0: Rick, it's a privilege to be here. The text is Second Peter 3, verse 2. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by
1: your apostles. When Jesus was being questioned by Pilate, he told him that those who were, quote, of the truth would, quote, hear his voice. Pilate's answer was an important question, for he asked, what is truth? This brief interchange brings us to similar questions. How do we know that we are people of truth? Do the groups we follow, be they centuries-old denominations or newer Christian sects, hold to the truth Jesus was speaking about. How much of what we're being taught is based on biblical truth? How much is based on denominational tradition? And how much is just plain opinion? And to pile on further, at the end of the day, does any of this even matter?
0: Is there a difference between the Bible and traditional Christian beliefs? And how much of our personal belief system is based on the Bible or
1: tradition? And really, that's what we want to delve into deeply today. And when I say delve deeply, we're going to go over several pieces without going into any one of them very, 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 very deeply. The point is to bring out a lot to think about. So we're going to start by looking at your question, Jonathan how much of our personal belief system is based on the Bible or tradition? We found two quotes on a blog called Fraternized by Ted Bobish, a retired priest of the Orthodox Church. In America. So we're going to go over these two quotes with a scripture in between to set a context for a particular denominational view of scriptures and tradition. This first quote is from an Eastern Orthodox monk in the early 1900s.
0: The scriptures are not more profound nor more important than the holy tradition, but they are one of its forms, the most precious form, but because they are preserved and convenient to make use of, But removed from the stream of sacred tradition, the scriptures cannot be rightly understood through any scientific research. Men are wrong when they set aside sacred tradition and go, as they think, to its source, to the holy scriptures. The church has her origins, not in the scriptures, but in sacred tradition. The church did not possess the New Testament during the first decades of her history. She lived them by tradition only tradition saint paul calls upon the faithful to
1: hold okay jonathan there's a lot here uh frankly that makes me a little bit frustrated because the 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 thought here and this is a specific denominational thought and we're putting it on the table because it's a very huge christian denomination it says the scriptures are not more profound or important than holy tradition beg to differ on every level conceivable with that. The, the Where he says men are wrong when they set aside sacred tradition and go as they think to its source. We will see that the scriptures actually debunk this thinking on their own. This, in my mind, is a dangerous mindset. And we'll give you what we believe to be the scriptural proof of that obviously you may look at it differently say no no you have to have the church traditions well stay with us as we open this up got to ask the question do the scriptures tell us to be forward thinking as this this quote is kind of showing us beyond what was written through the time of christ let's look at second timothy chapter 3 verses 13 to 17
0: but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you shall know the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good
1: work." So the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and we know this is Paul's farewell address. He knows his life is coming to an end, and he's encouraging Timothy to stay strong in the most important things. And it's interesting to me that one of the things he says, as this letter is beginning to draw down, is all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. So in Paul's caution, he's reminding him that Christian truth is only from God's own power. That word for inspired means essentially all Scripture is God-breathed. And we think about the Spirit as the unseen influence and power of God. What he's saying is all Scripture is coming directly from God through the individuals that were privileged to write it. This is an important process, an important understanding as a basis for who we are and what we are to be believing in. And
0: based on what we read, do we have the authority to add to the Scriptures by using traditions
1: and teachings of men? I, I don't see it here. Well, I don't see it here either. Now, here here's one thing about this, because you can look at this and say, well, obviously the Apostle Paul is referring to the Old Testament because Timothy is in the middle of the development of the New Testament. I mean, does Timothy understand that the letter he's reading is inspired scripture? Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. We don't know. So you can say, well, Paul is just focusing on the Old Testament, and therefore you might have a, a, uh, an idea that, okay, New Testament therefore had to be built on tradition. Hold that thought, okay? We're, we're, we're going to get to that with a few other scriptures. Let's go to another quote. This second quote we found was by John Baer in a book called Abba, the tradition of orthodoxy in the west. It's a much shorter quote, but listen carefully to the point.
0: Scripture cannot in fact stand alone as a source of authority, for it is always the scripture of a particular community and always needs interpretation. The inspiration of scripture cannot be separated from the inspired use of scripture within the church.
1: Okay actually, no, it's not okay. (laughs) It's not okay. The idea that Scripture cannot stand alone. The Apostle just said, and you can argue it's just the Old Testament, okay, I'll go with that. But he just said, this is what is God-breathed, nothing else. So he's saying, this is where you go, this is what you hold on to, this is what is most important. So we have to pay close attention here, because we've got orthodoxy— telling us that Scripture is a piece of tradition, rather than tradition is built on interpretation of Scripture. There's a big difference between those two things. We've got to be careful. Paul, in or I'm sorry, Peter, is now in the next verse, we're going to go to 2 Peter, he is going to expand on what Paul just said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that we just read, and he's going to open up how the Gospel itself would be able to be taught and learned in accordance with the same level of sacredness. Now let's pay close attention here because the argument is, are you looking at the scriptures as just you need to interpret them in a traditional sense to based on where you are and, and who you are or are the scriptures absolutely the final word of God? Let's look at Second Peter chapter 3 verses one and two and Jonathan verse two is our theme scripture.
0: This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your
1: apostles. So he talks about this is this is a beautiful text. Peter Peter was so inspired by God's Spirit here. He talks about the words spoken by the Holy Prophets, which Paul had alluded to in 2 Timothy. And then he says, in the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He brings in this word, apostles. What does that word specifically mean, Jonathan?
0: Well, it means a delegate, especially an ambassador of the gospel, officially a commissioner of
1: Christ. All right. And just to further that, in Thayer's Greek and English lexicon, I know it's a little bit repetitive, but give us some of the definitions there.
0: Sure. A delegate, messenger, one sent forth with orders, specifically applied to the 12 apostles of Christ, in a broader sense, applied to other eminent Christian teachers.
1: That's the key. In a broader sense, we know that there were only 12 apostles. And let's be clear on this, very, very clear. There are 12 foundations for the true Church. That's it. No more. We know who they are, and the Apostle Paul is one of them. However, the word apostle does mean a delegate, a messenger, one who was sent. There are several scriptural examples of individuals called apostles outside of the Twelve. Barnabas, for instance, is called an apostle in Acts chapter 14, verse 14. Epaphroditus is called an apostle in Philippians 2.25.
0: How about James, the Lord's brother, in Galatians 1.19?
1: He wrote the book
0: of James and was a leader at the conference in Jerusalem.
1: So we have that word used to describe several individuals outside of the 12 apostles who were sent, who had a very specific mission, and they were sent along with and by the actual apostles, the actual 12. So there is a very high level of of sacredness involved in this. And so when Peter says in Second Peter that the Lord and Savior spoke by your apostles, he's not just speaking of the twelve, he's speaking of all of those who were sent. So let's hold on to that thought, and let's finish what we started here by trying to define exactly how important the scriptures are in relation to church tradition with the understanding of apostles meaning those sent with the responsibility of defining the gospel peter gets specific about what the sacred text of holy writings would include so what is the holy writing of god the words that are inspired by god what is it second peter we're in chapter 3 now we're going to jump down to verses 14 through 17
0: therefore beloved since you look for these things a new heavens and a new earth Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction." You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Well, Rick, this is interesting. Peter here is saying, I'm in agreement with the Apostle Paul, and I'm confirming that
1: everything Paul wrote was sanctioned by God. He's calling what Paul wrote scriptures. And this is important because what he's basically saying is that you've got the 12 who were with Jesus, who saw Jesus. They are different in their positioning than anybody else in the true Christian church. You've got those who were sent along with them, Epaphroditus, uh, Barnabas, James, the Lord's brother. James, the Lord's brother, like you mentioned, he was a very strong influencer in the early church. He literally grew up with Jesus. These are men who were with the Lord, and they were begotten by God's Spirit, and they had this very special authority. There is a call to all reading Peter's words to be focused on the truth of the gospel and not on the interpretations of, as Peter says, those who would distort it for gain. We have to be careful to realize that the scriptures are their own thing and anything outside of it can easily become distorted if we're not careful. Many
0: Christian denominations challenge Paul's writings because it doesn't mesh with their doctrinal teachings. So Peter's statement holds true today. We address this in our Contradiction series, Episodes 1111, 1112, and 1114. Go to ChristianQuestions.com or the CQ app and enter the episode number into the search bar.
1: Jonathan, we need to remember that the letters the apostles wrote were passed around. They were, they were handed to others. This wasn't just tradition. These were the words of God through these men that were put in place. So as we search through this subject of truth and error, finding and embracing truth, what do we have?
0: As Christians, we are bound to the sacred writings of Scripture first and foremost. Any Christian tradition we would be attracted to must be thoroughly tested by the inspired word of truth we have in Scripture. And Rick, my takeaway from this is the Word of God stands on its own.
1: And that's the exact point. The Word of God does not need us to say, well, this is inspired and that's inspired and this is the inspired Word of God is part of our inspired tradition. Not so. Nothing else fits the qualifications that we talked about, about the Word of God flourishing here right before our eyes. Wrestling God's truth away from the errors of many Christian traditions and beliefs is not an easy task.
0: With the big picture of the importance of Scripture in place, what are some errors to watch out for?
1: The mere fact that there are thousands of Christian denominations and sects tells us that there are a myriad of errors out there. Our objective today is to isolate a few things to talk about, some of which may be familiar and some of which may come as a surprise. We have a bottom line, though, and our bottom line is very simple. What does the Bible teach? Let's back out from tradition, let's back out from everything else, and let's ask the simple question, what does the Bible teach? What about
0: churches that will perform a church wedding that does not include a civil legal
1: binding license? Is this appropriate? You may ask, why are we talking about this? Jonathan, I've had personal experience with this. I've had individuals who who've, I've actually spoken to who were part of this, and they were married in a church, uh, but it wasn't really a marriage, and they had to go get a, a legal license elsewhere. And there was a time lapse between those two things, and they seemed to think it was okay. And you think about it for a second and say, well, we were married before God. And you know, that sounds kind of romantic and wonderful, but it's not scriptural. And that's the thing. I don't care how it sounds. I don't care how it feels. What do the scriptures teach us about these things? And Jonathan, in fact, this is a gross misrepresentation of how the scriptures read on marriage. Interestingly, the Bible does not dwell on the civil aspect of marriage. You can't find a scripture that says, well, marriage is a legally binding contract. You can come close, but it's not really going to say that, and we'll, we'll show you how, how we come close with that. But it does emphatically support the idea of a civil uh, civil contract. Let's begin at the beginning. Let's begin with the very first marriage, Genesis 2, 23 to 25, Adam and Eve.
0: The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed.
1: So the man shall be joined and they shall become one flesh. There is a very distinct positioning here that is civil. All of the rules and guidelines... Given to given to Adam and Eve were civil. In other words, they were the laws of the land. Adam and Eve didn't go to church. They were the laws of the land. This is how marriage was defined, as one of the laws of the land that God had put in place. God proclaimed marriage to be a lifelong civil contract, legally binding by the laws of the land. Of course. Unfortunately, I say, we all know that the law, the the Jewish law in the Old Testament, did allow divorce to be introduced into the picture.
0: So what you're saying is the physical joining of a man and woman is not a marriage without the binding legal
1: contract. Exactly. Precisely. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. Now, look, we've just talked about that one small example. Let's expand this, and let's show you how the Scriptures emphatically support this stance. Jesus comments on this very plainly, this idea of the civil contract, when asked by the Pharisees if you can divorce for any reason. And Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to read these verses. I don't necessarily like talking about these verses, but we've got to read them to make the point. Matthew 19, verses 4 to 8.
0: And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are not no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way.
1: Jesus gives this beautiful dissertation on what marriage is and adds to what was what was written originally, they are two one flesh what therefore God has joined let no man separate. So he makes it a very clear statement, marriage is for life. That's what he says. In Deuteronomy 24 in the law, the Jewish law outlined the process for divorce. And when you read the process, there is absolutely no question. It is clearly a civil process. It has to do with the laws of the land, written documentation that cancels a a civil contract. Jesus said, this isn't a good thing. This is not what you're supposed to be doing. You shouldn't be asking about this. You should be focusing on making marriage work. Because that civil contract of marriage was in fact called a covenant of God, which again was a civil matter. You made a covenant before witnesses. It was a matter of the laws of the land. Such a promise, though civil, was invoking God's presence to seal that promise by the highest power anywhere.
0: In the Christian age, Matthew 19, 9 states, There's only one thing that justifies divorce, and that is sexual relations with someone other than your spouse. This scripture also debunks the idea of churches that say you need their permission to remarry. The point is, if you divorced for the proper reasons, you are free to remarry.
1: what we're doing is simply going by the words of Jesus, and that's the important thing. There is no tradition here. There is no, there is no, 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 uh, no, no community rule here that's going to wear out at some point. Jesus is making statements for us to build upon as footstep followers. That's what this is. So we need to understand unequivocally: marriage has to be done in a civil law-abiding fashion for it to be real. There is no exception to that. So Jonathan, let, let, let's wrap this up, finding and embracing truth in relation to this.
0: As Christians, we need to be aware when churches step beyond the authority of Scripture and institute church authority, such steps can assume control in our lives that is not
1: in accordance with true Christian principles. So we want to be careful. When you have the idea of church authority that doesn't seem to have scriptural stance that really, clearly, utterly supports it. And, and whether this marriage question that we just talked about uh, comes up or not, whether it's, it's common even, is not necessarily material. What it does is it lays out a principle for us, and this is a principle of deep importance. Christianity is a call to Christ. However, we are still in the world, but we're not of the world jesus told us that as we serve this call what does that mean it means we are instructed to be obedient to the civil laws in accordance with our highest spiritual conscience obedience to civil laws spiritual conscience those two must work together let's go back to peter first peter chapter 2 verses 13 to 17
0: Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evil doers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king.
1: Peter is basically saying, be a good citizen. And he says, act as free men, but do it as a bond slave of God. So our freedom has the reins of godliness that, that that guide it. We need to keep within our godliness and not be uh, outside of that when we are acting as, quote, free men. Our lives should be examples of good citizenship within the context of serving God first and always. Going further to another scripture, our reasonable demeanor, and it talks about being reasonable, should extend to all aspects of our lives, no matter what our personal circumstances are. So whether you are rich or poor, advantaged or not, pay close attention. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and Jonathan will just do verse 1 before we take a brief break on it.
0: Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by
1: God. All right. Every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. That sounds like, wait a minute, really? Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing at a time of strict Roman rule. That's they did, right. Yeah, all of the rules weren't great okay, no. <laughs> for, for personal freedom. His point is that and here, here's what, it, what I think he's saying. You are called within the context of your own experiences. This means God's providence is providing you with a Christian context to your experiences. This means God's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, so, so you, you've got this growth environment, this Christian growth environment, even if you were or are socially or economically disadvantaged. What he's saying is you be the same within where you are, don't think that now that you've called to Christ you can you can you can you can step outside of your 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 life you can't but you have to grow within it that's where god called you let's go to verses 2 through 5 of romans 13
0: therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of god and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil do you want to have no fear of authority Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So Rick, whatever circumstance we're called in, we should be the best citizens we can be, and we should not be a rebel.
1: <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm laughing, but that's such an important principle. and that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That's what the Apostle Peter was saying, Be a good citizen in the context of where you are. Let God's providence develop you because you're being developed not for this world, but for eternity. Take the small, finite experiences of this life. And see them through the eyes of eternity with Jesus. Christians must always remember going on to the next part of the scripture to do their part in supporting whatever freedoms we may have by paying our fair share. We're in Romans thirteen verses six and seven. For
0: because of this, you also pay taxes; for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them: tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor.
1: And you can say, well, Jonathan and Rick, they're all crooked. Well, I don't know, maybe they are. Do you think all the rulers of, in, in the Apostle Paul's time were just straight as arrows? I don't, I don't think so. The point is, be the citizen. Like you said, don't be the rebel. Put yourself in a position where you are able to witness to the gospel of Christ. Because what's the most important thing? Trying to change society around you? or witnessing to the good news of the kingdom. witnessing the good news, to, that, for sure. That's right. It's about the ransom. It's about, it's about helping others to see something hopeful beyond all of the mess of this particular world that we're in. These are principles that if our churches are saying, oh, no, no, we need to stand up and change this and that, question this. Question it, because we don't have scriptural authority to go down that road. Finding and embracing truth, Jonathan, what do we have?
0: As Christians, our modeling of good citizenship, according to our highest spiritual conscience is actually witnessing appropriate Christian
1: behavior for all to see. And you realize that Jesus did exactly that. Now, he healed on the Sabbath, and you say, well, you know, the Pharisee said he was wrong and shouldn't have been doing that, but he was able to. The law did not disallow him from doing it. Jesus stayed within the guidelines of the law and did everything for the good of others, That's what we should be doing as well. That's the principle we want to take home with us from this piece of this lesson. So this is a lesson in paying attention to details. Just because a pastor says it doesn't mean he got it from the Bible.
0: What about the way our church systems are organized? Are they traditional or are they scriptural?
1: This is a big point that we'll only touch briefly upon. There's a very specific organizational system found in the New Testament, and it's very different from what we see in most churches. Here again, we want to be meticulous in absorbing the biblical teaching and then comparing it to what we see outside of the biblical teaching. So we're looking at biblical scripture and verse— and then we're going to look at it from through the eyes of tradition and say, okay, do the two actually match? Did the early church have a hierarchy? That's a really important question. Some say yes and take these next verses as positive proof. Let's look at Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18.
0: He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it.
1: So in this verse, we have a very clear statement by Jesus. And I say very clear, but I think it's grossly misunderstood and misinterpreted. Thou art Peter, because Peter is the one that said, hey, you are the Christ." Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. First of all, let's understand what the words mean. Peter, we know, is the guy's name, right? But what does the word Peter actually mean?
0: In the Greek, it means a piece of rock.
1: And it's always translated Peter or stone regarding Peter's name. Okay, so you have a clarity right there. You have a clarity, a piece of rock. Now, one traditional interpretation of this verse is, indicates Peter was to be the father of the Christian church leadership. This would create a hierarchy with the proclaimed authority, quote-unquote, of Peter at its helm. So they're claiming that the Scripture is proclaiming Peter as being the rock upon which the church is built. But folks, that's not what the Scripture is saying. It just simply isn't. You are Peter, and upon this rock— The word for rock, upon this rock, is a very different word in this verse. Jonathan, what does that
0: word mean? It means a large mass of rock.
1: So thou art Peter, a piece of rock. And that's good. That's strong. That's important. That's foundational because he's one of the 12. But it's not this large mass of rock. And if you look at every time this word is used symbolically in the New Testament, who does it refer to? Jesus. time. Time. We'll just give you one example, First Corinthians 10, verse 4.
0: And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was
1: Christ. So you don't have any question as to who that rock was. That's the exact same word as upon this rock. So when we ask this question about hierarchy, we see that the, the 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 idea of thou art Peter and upon this rock doesn't mean what a lot of individuals seem to say that it means.
0: For more on what biblical church organization and leadership should look like, go to episode 1140, Does My Church Leadership Have It Right? Episode 1140.
1: Okay, so we're putting some things in place. We're trying to establish how it all fits together. And we looked last segment at at a very specific uh, denominational perspective on church and tradition, and this segment we're looking at going further into that, and now we want to delve even further.
0: Well, Rick, if there is no hierarchy, then who is to guide the
1: church? All right. Logical, important, critical question. Okay, you're taking the hierarchy away, how dare you, but who then does the guiding? The early church had a decision process regarding leadership, and it was very clear. Though it's not well understood in our day. I truly believe it was clearly understood without question in their day. We're going to look at an example of Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. We're going to go to Acts 14 verses 21 to 23 and get and see how this church setup was actually put in place. And when they had preached
0: the gospel to that city, And had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had
1: prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed." And you read that scripture, and you say, "Ah, see, they ordained elders." And of course, when we think of somebody being ordained, we think of them being appointed, of being sort of, you know, put put in a place because you are you are by the authorities, you are given power. That's what we think of when we think of ordained. But Jonathan, is that what the word actually means?
0: Not at all, Rick. This word means to be a hand-reacher or voter by raising the hand. That is generally to select or
1: appoint. So the idea of the word, the meaning of the word behind ordained is to actually raise your hand and vote. See, that's not what we get from our typical traditional viewpoint. Elders, what this verse is saying, were chosen from within those congregations from which they came no reference to bringing in outside leaders to lead. Jonathan, a quick reference from the biblical commentary by Albert Barnes.
0: The word here refers simply to an election or appointment of the elders. It is said indeed that Paul and Barnabas did this, but probably all that is meant by it is they presided in the assembly when the choice was made. And Rick, you know, that makes sense because they didn't know them personally.
1: Yeah, and you, you have a sense of internal responsibility. That's what's being built here, internal responsibility. That's the important thing, and that's what I think we're being taught in this act scripture that gets overlooked.
0: And Rick, in John 18, 37 and 38, you mentioned this earlier. Jesus said uh, to Pilate, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate asked, well, what is truth? And
1: Jesus didn't reply. And Jesus didn't reply because it wasn't time. And Pilate wasn't in, in a place to want to really know truth. The question is: are we in a place to want to really know truth? Because Jesus said, people of truth will hear my voice. How do we determine truth? Folks, it's by the scriptures. First and foremost, our foremost, are, are commentaries helpful? Yes. Do we read commentaries? Yes. Do they help us? Yes. But it all comes back to Scripture, first and foremost. And if it doesn't square with Scripture, we really can't hold on to it. So let's go a little further. Let's look at another use for this word uh, ordain. Actually, the only other use for this particular word ordain, and again, the hand raiser, is in Second Corinthians 8, 16 to 19.
0: But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord, and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who also, who I'm sorry, but who also who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord Himself, and to show your ready mind.
1: So it's interesting that that word translated ordain in Acts 14 gives you one feeling, but here the word is translated chosen. So they sent this brother Titus uh, with the apostle because he was chosen by the churches, and obviously he was voted on by being chosen. Exactly. So, So it becomes a very clear statement when we see it in the context of proper scriptural understanding.
0: Well, how would this brother have been chosen by
1: the churches? They would have raised their hands. They would have said, yes, we believe Titus is the one. Who's all in favor? I. That That's what we're seeing here, and that's what we want to hold on to. Why? Because it's scriptural evidence that tells us how the early church was actually set up. That's what it tells us. The key was not to exercise personal preference, but the following, the following of the leading Of God's Spirit instead.
0: Just an observation. This is a subtle thing that shows how the early churches had internal accountability.
1: The congregation had as much accountability as the leadership. They did. They did. And we've completely lost that. Now it's left up to the board, to the directors, to the, to the home office, if you will, of whatever, the, of whatever the denomination is. And all of the internal affairs, which should have been completely governed from within for each location, is gone. And we've lost something incredibly valuable. It's as if to say, well, you know, they, they believed in the Holy Spirit in those days, and the Holy Spirit would have worked in each of the individuals. So are we saying that the Holy Spirit only works in the, in the clergy system now and the individuals not so much? I mean, really? That's dangerous. Of course, it is, and it's not scriptural, and that's the key, folks. We're 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 focusing on these things because we want to focus on scripture.
0: Well, you know, the congregation would ask, well, how do we elect them? How do they qua- qualify for this position? Well, there are three places in the New Testament that gives us guidelines for the qualifications of church leaders, and that's found in 1 Timothy three one to seven. Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, and 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. And they're all in harmony with each other, Rick.
1: And they show us what the qualifications are supposed to be. Where do we get the qualifications? From the Holy Word of God. It's really simple. We want to stay with that. Now, we're thinking about this thing about being ordained, and, and that's, that's a sticking point. So let's compare another scriptural word. And this word is another word that is translated ordain. But what does this word actually mean, Jonathan? It means to place. And the lexicon, the uh, Hebrew, uh, the Thayer's Greek English lexicon says what? Well,
0: to set, put, place, to place or lay, to put down, to lay down.
1: It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It is a putting something in a specific place. There are many uses of this word in in the new testament we're just going to touch on two of them to make the point. point first matthew chapter 5 verse 15
0: neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel
1: and put it under a bushel that's a really simple statement you don't put the candle under something where its light won't be helpful First of all, it's a fire hazard. Secondly, (laughs) you're defeating the purpose. You put it, you place it there. That's what the word for ordain means. Hebrews 1, 2 is another example.
0: Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And Rick, that word appointed is the same word for ordained to God place, Jesus.
1: And so we see there's no voting needed for that. It's God's unilateral decision. The ordaining is kind of a unilateral decision, but the choosing was a group decision. Let's not confuse the two. And when it comes to church leadership, it's supposed to be the group's decision that's supposed to be guided by the Spirit. And when when we get away from that, when we get away from the goodness of watching God's Spirit work, we end up with corruption, we end up with dishonesty, we end up with greed, and disaster. Don't want to go into it, just just look at some headlines, look at some history, and see how misused clergy has, has, has been, the misuse of, of the clergy that's been happening throughout history. It's amazing. Early church eldership was a function, as you said, Jonathan, of the church's decision essentially the vote of those whom the elder would be shepherding, and not the decision of some other individual or some higher, far-off committee. It was local. That's the way the scriptures worked. I have no understanding of how it could have changed so dramatically according to scripture. We have no guidance for that. Since most
0: Christian churches of our day don't follow the scriptural way to elect their leaders have we seen repercussions over time in doing it the wrong way and you've you mentioned a, a small list but some things have just been horrific yeah, that yeah. that we've looked back in history and it, it's so sad
1: it is and and we want to stay with scripture and that's why we're talking about truth or error truth or error let's focus let's say okay what can we do how can we learn better jonathan finding and embracing truth from this 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 uh, segment
0: when it comes to our church leadership We as Christians need to be willing to ask the hard questions. Are we willing to place ourselves in an environment that dictates what should be instead of an environment that biblically gives us the responsibility to choose?
1: You know, it's a lot easier to say, oh, let them decide. But that's not scriptural, and that's not spiritual. We need to put ourselves in a position of responsibility. Why? Because that's where the scriptures put us. So looking at these various issues can create serious discomfort. We can either run from that discomfort or grow through it.
0: What about the doctrine of women not teaching in the Christian church? Why shouldn't they?
1: As with every other issue we've covered, we need clear biblical teaching behind our conclusions. One of the things we need to be careful of is the sense that something doesn't feel right or feel up-to-date so we, therefore, need to change it. Biblical Christianity has things in a very specific order for very specific reasons. We need to understand that. Jonathan, the Bible was not compiled or written by accident, by whim, by, oh, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do that. It was, it was God-driven. So we have the answers, but sometimes we may not like the answers question is, if I don't like it, but it's there, am I willing to accept it? We know that one of the consequences of Eve's sin was to become subject to her husband, and we know that the Jewish law clearly followed that precedent, for that is what God had proclaimed. So we've got that clearly set up in the Old Testament.
0: Well, Rick, when we move into the era of Jesus and Christianity, the question is, would God remove what he had proclaimed from the very beginning,
1: See, that, and that's an important question. You have a pattern, a clear pattern established throughout all of the Old Testament. So would God completely undo that when Jesus comes on the scene? Well, here's what we know. We know that Jesus had great respect for women treating them with equal respect as he did men. And, and that is a, a marvelous point that is easily provable as you examine Jesus and his interchanges with several women in Scripture. The Apostle Paul also had great respect for women as well. And some of us will look at it and say, well, the Apostle Paul was a tyrant when he came to women. Think about this. Think about Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2.
0: I commend to you our
1: sister Phoebe,
0: who was a servant of the church which is in Zacchaeus, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well.
1: So what an incredible testimony of respect for this sister in Christ. Hey, she's coming to you. Whatever she says she needs you to do to help her out, please do. So he's not putting her in some little subservient, mousy way. He's saying she is a very important, very strong, foundational help to me in the gospel. Help her, because she is working God's work. That's incredible.
0: It is. And we discuss treatment and respect for women in episode 865, Does the Bible Advocate for Women's Rights? Remember, go to ChristianQuestions.com or the CQ app and search for episode number 865.
1: So we've got Paul showing us this great respect. And yet, to be fair, there are many scriptures, especially written by the Apostle Paul, that give women a status that is subservient to men. So this, what, what do you do with that? Well, this shows us that the consequences for sin. Remember, Jonathan, we talked about it earlier. Eve's consequence in the law it was carried through to be to subservience. This shows us that that consequences that consequence was still intact even within Christian culture. So let's take a look at that. Let's look at an example of that. Colossians chapter three verses eighteen and nineteen.
0: Wives, submit yourself unto your own husband, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love, agape. And Rick, that's the selfless kind of love, giving without expecting in return. So husbands, love, agape, love your wives,
1: and be not bitter against them. So it says wives, submit. And what does that word mean, the The, the Hebrew, the Greek word?
0: It means to subordinate, reflexively to obey.
1: So you've got this, okay, be subordinate and be obedient. You say, wow, that's something. Boy, that might be tough. Well, look at the other side of it. Husband, agape, love your wife. Love her in a way that you are giving and not worrying about what you're getting back with, with no expectation of return. That's how Jesus loves. Mm-hmm. That's how a husband is supposed to love his wife. There is a high, high responsibility there. So we've got this scripture, the, and, and you've got this idea of submission. You say, well, see, that's not very fair. Let's hang on. The idea of being in submission is not. It's not just for the husband-wife relationship. Let's now move to to Ephesians, another letter by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 27. Let's just do 21 and 22 for this moment.
0: Subjecting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be in subjection unto
1: your own husbands as unto the Lord. So when it says subject yourselves to one another and wives be in subjection, it's the exact same word. So that we, means everyone
0: is in subjection. Ex- so <laughs> exactly good, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, now, now look, that does not diminish the idea that a wife is still supposed to be subjective, subjected, you know, subordinate to their husband. That we're, we're not trying to take away from that, we're putting it in the context of the body of scripture. Why? Well, first, we know because sin caused that, that is a consequence of original sin. That's the first thing. But there's something much bigger here. And this is, to me, the most important part of this. And if we see this next point clearly and understand it and embrace it, we will embrace this relationship. So the very specific reason to adhere to the women not teaching standard, the women being subservient standard, the Apostle Paul continues in Ephesians 5. Let's first do verses 23 and 24.
0: For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, being himself the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives also be to their husbands in everything. So
1: he's showing us that we, in that husband-wife relationship, are modeling the relationship of Christ and the bride of Christ, Christ and the church. And he says, as the church is subject, exact same word to Christ, so let the wives also be subject to their husbands and everything. So let me pause there for a second, because this idea of being subject to Christ, do you like being subject to Christ?
0: I love being subject to Christ. Why? (laughs) Because he died for me. He loves me. He's helping me to grow spiritually. So it's the least I could do. I mean. Humility is such a vital part of our Christian walk.
1: It is. And this idea of being subject like this is an important aspect. And this is giving us a picture to actually live out. So now let's read verses 25 through 27 of Ephesians chapter 5.
0: Husbands, love. There's that word agape again. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved, agape the church, and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so Rick, shouldn't we follow the model of what the apostle taught us here?
1: Nah, let's just throw the model away, Jonathan, because it's not up to date. It's not 21st century. It's not. It's not what people want. It's not what people expect. I'm being sarcastic. You know that, right? I do. <laughs> good. It's a good thing because boy, I'd be in big trouble if you what? didn't. <laughs> but see, it's so tempting to say that was then, this is now. Get with the times, and the answer is no. Get with discipleship. Get with the requirements of following Christ, of wanting to live up to everything that we're taught to do, because ours is a life of self-sacrifice. Ours is a life of following, and if this is how we show it, we should rejoice, like you said, we should rejoice in the showing it. Our faithful adherence to this picture is showing our total devotion to Christ, on both ends. Because remember, it's not just the wife being subservient, it's the husband selflessly. Men, selflessly. You know what that means? Selflessly. That's hard for men. This is why I'm repeating (laughs) it. Selflessly love your wife. That is what this is about. So why wouldn't we be obedient to such biblical devotion? It's such a devoted picture on both sides, and I think a cause for rejoicing. Having said that, Let's remember that women worked side by side with men in the witness work of the gospel. They were right there on the front lines. Great example of that is Acts eighteen, verses twenty-four to twenty-six.
0: Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of john and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue but when priscilla and aquila heard him they took him aside and explained to him the way of god more accurately Oh, rick i think because priscilla was mentioned before her husband it shows how much value she had her spiritual wisdom along with aquila's helped apollos understand
1: true baptism. And the result of that was Apollos became a very strong advocate for Christ. Very eloquent speaker, very educated, and very, very spiritually passionate to deliver the gospel message. How did he get there? He had a sister and her husband help him help him understand things he didn't understand. And what did he do with that? He willingly accepted the good news, the gospel truth from them, and he grew as a result. So we do see that women are deeply respected and advocated for in New Testament Christianity. And Rick, in 1 Timothy 2.12, we haven't even
0: brought up that scripture, "...suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man." Because of Eve, um, she was deceived in the Garden of Eden. This was one of her punishments.
1: And we are to have respect for the fact that that was a consequence, and we need to honor that consequence. Why? Because God gave it. Did he give us permission to to take it away? No. Now, there's another scripture that says there's neither male nor female, neither bond nor free, but we're all the same in Christ. True. True. But when it comes to the structure of the true church, there are roles that certain individuals are called upon to play or not play. Can we say, well, we're going to go by this one scripture but not go by the other? Come on, we can't do that. Well, you can do that. But if you're a disciple of Christ, that is a big, big mistake. We don't want to minimize scriptures to, to, to make something fit our comfort level more, more fully. Folks, let's take these scriptures and put them in order because this is the Word of God. We want to be in truth, not in error. Jonathan, as we begin to wrap this up, finding and embracing truth.
0: As 21st century Christians, we are still called to uphold the biblical teachings that women should not teach within church meetings, as is illustrated in Jesus' love for his church and the church's love for Jesus. And just because, Rick, uh, women are not supposed to teach in the church doesn't mean women are less. This is one reason why Bible study is so important. It gives everyone an equal voice to share or participate in spiritual lessons. Also, testimony meetings help us to understand each other so we can be blessed by our collective experiences in Christ.
1: And, and, and even the election process, you know, the electing that we talked about earlier, men and women, it's, it's, it's the voting, it's the voting of the, the group, the church for those that would lead. So yeah, there is a real camaraderie, a real working together within all of that. And, and Jonathan, just a, an interesting perspective. We have tons and tons of, of volunteers working at Christian Questions. I don't know. I don't, even keep, I don't even know how many. Over 50, I've been told. And, <laughs> and most of those volunteers are sisters in Christ. And, you know, you watch them work and you watch them dive into the work of God and dive into service and, and, and really, really pour themselves out because they're, they're contributing to the expansion of the gospel. They're contributing to the witness work. They're contributing to the encouragement, to the, to the preaching of the kingdom. We all work together and not one of us is more important than any other, period. Amen, yeah. amen. Praise praise God for that. So as we wrap this up, all in all, we, as Christians, as individual Christians, need to focus ourselves on the sacredness of scriptural teaching as our highest and purest guide. This focus is a proof of our discipleship. It's a proof of our discipleship. 2 Timothy two fourteen and 15.
0: Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the
1: word of truth. So folks, as we wrap this up, it's really simple. We are to be diligent to present ourselves approved, not by what our pastor tells us, but by our work and our effort to understand and embrace the word of God, and then to live it all as best as we possibly can, so we don't have to be ashamed before who? Before Christ, because we're accurately handling God's word of truth. Find your Christianity and truth, not tradition. Follow the truth of scripture, not whatever error seems to be convenient, so that we can all stand for those things that are most important and most God-honoring. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions and your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Podbean or iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, folks, you want to be with us next week. The question for next week Could an addiction block my Christian growth? We have a special guest with us who's gone through addiction, and she shares her story to show us how powerful it is and how powerful Christ can be. Talk to you next week.